Welcome, Redemption Arcadia. So glad that you've chosen to join us this morning, uh, whether in person or catching us online. Thank you so much for participating with us in this worship service. So glad that you're here. And, and for me personally, uh, shared with a few of you that I'm just so glad that we're able to be in the same room. And we can take precautions by wearing masks and staying distance from each other. But I'm glad that we're able to gather in this room uh, with these limited gatherings. And so I'd invite you at this point to stand. Uh, and even if you're at home uh, watching, we, we'd love for you to worship with us as well uh, in, in your homes. And so we'll worship together this morning as we sing of this Jesus Christ and his gospel.
So part of the reason that I love to worship with you all is that we get to praise God, but we also get to sing this good news for all of us to hear. Sometimes we need to sing this message of God's salvation for each other. So there's two things happening here, and more than that, really, but we're praising God, we're praising our Father, but we're also sharing this message of God's gospel and of God's good news. So let's continue to sing.
great a chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into into this new life in you. So God, we praise you for your good news. We praise you for your love. We pray that all these things be done to glorify you, Lord, for your, for 
for our growth, for our good, and for your glory. God, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for worshiping. Arcadia. I hope this day finds you all flourishing and uh, in reasonably good health considering these vexing and fretful times. Uh, I can't see those of you who are joining us remotely, but I can tell you that the folks here are all stylishly adorned in their pandemic best, and you're safely distanced, you're masked up, and you even mumbled quite well in your mass during the worship service. So great to have you here. For those of you who may be new or just like to be reminded, we are, Redemption is one church with nine congregations. We are gospel-centered, we are outward-focused, and we believe all of life is all for Jesus. Uh, by the way, I am Steve Wheeler. Uh, by appointment and by chronology, I am one of the elders here at the church. Uh, so it's my pleasure to be up here with several announcements. Uh, first, we have two events coming up this month on Wednesday night uh, that I hope you will find uh, uh, most instructive for you. The first is uh, on Wednesday night, and hopefully we will have it up on the screen. Uh, it'll be Wednesday, uh, uh, August 19th at 6.30, and I think it'll be live cast, but it'll certainly be here in person. Uh, we are going to have Frank, Pastor Frank, up here with Joe Ponce and Kirk Weidenhoff, and they are going to be sort of uh, resurrecting and revisiting some of the memorable teachings of our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, who passed away several years ago. Those of you who knew Tom knew him as a master communicator. He was witty, he was humorous, he was sarcastic, he was cynical, but he was, he was captivating. And, and he was able to take and distill the essential elements of our faith and the practical applications of that faith into some memorable, pithy aphorisms, sort of quotable quotes. In, in some respects, they were sort of the proverbs of the modern age, and we called them Schraderisms. And that's why you see the, uh, the name up there on the screen. Uh, one of my favorites was whenever people would tell him, well, the Bible's old, it's you know, at least 2,000 years old, who pays attention to it anymore? It's just old-fashioned. And, and one of his great comments was, an eternal God doesn't produce dated material. And so he had just this great way of capturing uh, the truths of, of our faith, and there are just a ton of those that we'll be discussing uh, Wednesday night. Uh, and, and these are the type of things that would stick with you and would continue to encourage and inform and instruct you long after you first heard them. And that's why you hear many of us talk about Schraderisms. You see Frank quoting him uh, in his sermons. And it would be well worth your time to bring a pencil and a paper or use your recorder to, to, to gather some wisdom from this. The second event is going to be August 26th, the, the following Wednesday. And, and at that time, we're going to have Frank up here. We, we're calling it, frankly speaking, Two. If you'll remember, this is a sequel to Frankly Speaking One, which we had a number of weeks ago in which uh, I interviewed Frank and we got to know the man, the myth, the legend, and, and the like. But this time, instead of focusing on Frank's eccentricities and his foibles and his many quirks, we're going to interview Frank and he's going to give us a biblical perspective and a commentary on some of the tumultuous events and some of the social trends that are going on today, things that are sort of ripped from the headlines of today's paper. And he's going to talk to us about those and how we can best respond to them in a God-honoring way. So you'll want to be there for that one, too. Second uh, announcement on finances. Some of you are asking, how are we doing uh, financially uh, during this time? And I can tell you that amid all these economic shutdowns and convulsions and the uh, volatility in the financial markets. I'm pleased to report that for the first six months of the year, you have been generous, you've remained generous and steadfast in your giving of your tithes and your offerings. Our staff has been very diligent, and in fact, even creative in managing our costs. In fact, our costs 
for the first six months, they were able to eke out $64,000 in savings in our costs below what we had budgeted for this time. And during that time, we've actually been able to, to increase and invest in uh, some equipment, some production equipment, which will serve us well in the future. And we've been able to help people in distress through the use of our benevolence fund. And the net result is that overall, we are in a, a healthy, uh, sustaining financial condition uh, with an adequate cash flow. And so that's, that's good news, and I thank you all for that. Th third announcement, uh, and it's with a great deal of uh, disappointment and, and sadness, uh, that after, I'm here to report that after much deliberation and prayer, James Delorado has decided to resign from his staff position here. Those of you who got a chance to know James knew him as just a, a man who hungered after God. He was energetic and passionate, and he had a real heart for, for, for teaching, for mentoring, for helping, and for serving others. And so we're really going to miss him, and if you get a chance when you see him around here, if you see he and Liz and Jeremiah's son, just express your thanks and appreciation to him for his time spent here. And then finally, uh, you may have read in the newspapers, Frank is back from his sojourn at the family Bible camp he goes to in Iowa. He's been doing that for a number of years and very important part of his life, and he's very important to the operation of the camp. And rumor has it that uh, he actually was awarded the coveted Happy Camper Award this year. And so <laughs> I, I, I hear he's very proud of that. And, and he actually, but wait, there's more. Uh, he actually also earned uh, a merit badge with the highest honors in the crafts department. So <laughs> we're, we're real excited for him. We're happy to have him back. And uh, I've been told that's all the announcements I can give you today. So I'm going to ask Malaya to come up, and I would ask you to stand for the reading of the word, please. The reading for today is from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Malia. Morning, Redemption Arcadia. It is great to see you, although I almost didn't come back from Iowa, I will tell you. Uh, I cried as I was driving back, and I hit Missouri. I literally started crying. It was just unbelievable. By the way, whatever you think you know about Iowa, throw it out the window, because I was in northeast Iowa, three miles from the Mississippi River. Northeast Iowa has forests and rolling hills. It's not like the rest of Iowa. Uh, the camp, it was my 24th year at the camp. It's a wonderful time. Um, and there's no, really no pandemic in Iowa right now. Um, I, I guess eating corn on the cob is the key to not having COVID. And uh, the media will not pick up on that. So if we could just import some corn on the cob here. Anyway, it was a great time. Um, the camp did, uh, the camp's been running all summer and they did a lot of protocols though. I mean, one of the things we did was uh, during the singing part of our chapels, we were outside singing. So that was helpful. We ate in pods and in shifts. Um, so we did a lot of things that were helpful, but um, uh, other than that, it really ran like the camp normally does and got to go on the Mississippi, and it was, uh, it was really a great time. I was struck the first night. I got there uh, Sunday noon. The camp starts around 5 Sunday night, and uh, our first chapel is Sunday night after dinner, and so we're all outside singing, being led by the camp praise band. And we're singing, I can't remember the song, it's a pretty famous song, Tyler's done it here, it's a great song. Uh, and, and I'm kind of looking around at this point and I see people openly weeping while they're singing. And I was able to later on talk to the camp director, Cammie, and kind of say, what was that about? And she said, well, you gotta remember that um, most of the families that are here at this camp are coming from Minneapolis, Milwaukee, and Chicago areas, and they have not had church in five months, and this is the first time they've been able to sing with people. I can even hardly tell the story. And it's important. This is why it is important to be able to gather, and uh, we're in the midst of that tension, and we're trying to navigate that tension as best we can because we recognize the importance of not forsaking the gathering of God's people, as Hebrews 10 
uh, tells us, um, but also trying to make sure that we're safe and, and doing what um, uh, the state would like us to be able to do and following the CDC outlines. And so as such, um, I have a couple of additional comments. Well, one that pertains to that. Um, because of the response now to sort of opening up our live stream 9 o'clock service, you can see even in here now, uh, because of that response, which we're very gratified by, um, we're adding a second service next week at 10.30. So we're going to be going 9 and 10.30. And it's important for you to hear this, and it's important for you at home to hear this as well. Um, we're going to live stream both. So this will give you four ways that you can uh, worship with us on Sunday. You can come in person at either 9.30 or uh, 9 o'clock or 10.30, or you can worship from home live at 9 or 10.30, and then sometime Monday, we're going to be able to get the recording of one of those two services, whichever one is best, obviously, but we'll get the recording of one of those two services up on our YouTube channel uh, in case you aren't able to do anything on Sunday morning, either one, any of those four things, you'll be able to watch it sometime during um, the week. And we've noticed uh, on, our, on our views that uh, in the middle of the week, those views do start going up. And interestingly enough, they also go up a week in arrears. So we know that there are people who are like a, a week behind, and they're watching everything a week behind. It's, it's a new world. We just have to get used to it. And that's you know, one of the things we'll talk about in the Frankly Speaking too, is the ability to pivot. If you, if you have an ability to pivot and recognize new realities, I think we can uh, navigate through some of these uh, very troubling waters. So, uh, and I want to say this is 9 and 1030 for now. Everything in the midst of COVID is for now. You have to understand that. We may, in four weeks, we may come and announce the addition of a third service, or we may uh, say that we're changing the times because we've run into something else. It for now, starting August 16th, it'll be 9 and 10.30. And I know I've had some calls and some um, emails about, well, what about uh, children's ministry? Well, for now, we still aren't having children's ministry. And uh, speaking to Tyler James and Heather Miller, and just speaking also myself to people who would like to have children's ministry, we're running into two challenges. Number one, the people who still, the parents who still don't want to bring their children into a situation like that because of COVID uh, far outweigh the number of people, parents who are willing to go ahead and bring their children. So um, even if we offer children's ministry, it would still be relatively small, um, just based on the conversations we're having and some of the straw polls that we're taking. Uh, and the, the other challenge is that there are not a lot of volunteers right now who are interested in serving in that in that environment. I think if we had adults ministry where we knew that people would leave their masks on and stay socially distanced, that we might have more volunteers, but you don't really need to watch adults. But um, with kids, it's hard to make them wear masks for uh, 60 or 70 minutes and socially distance. And so that creates some tension and anxiety with people who want to volunteer. So um, one of the things that I've been asking, though, parents who do want to have children's ministry, now that we're going to two services, if you could uh, see your way clear to volunteering in one of the services to serve for children's ministry and then coming to another service, that would be a way that we could start to get that back uh, off the ground. But I also believe that until we're able to um, actually see how some of the schools go and that Maybe we can relieve some of this tension with um, maybe not an influx of new COVID cases among kids. Maybe that will also help us to relieve our tension around here and we'll start to have more people be able to do that. So for now, 9 and 10.30, no children's ministry, but that could change in September and we're hoping that that will. Uh, the last thing, I know there's a lot of interest. Whenever I come back from anywhere, there's usually a lot of stuff that we got to talk about that has nothing to do with the sermon. So don't worry, there's still a sermon. Some of you are like, okay. Um, I, I have not talked about the Seinfeld show in months, maybe even more than a year. And I think it's time to resurrect that. Can I get an amen? Hey, that was pretty good. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, there's, there's a... a a point in, this, in, the, in the series where George Costanza, if you don't remember George, um, he starts dating a woman named Susan from NBC, and they end up getting engaged. But George very much wants to keep Susan away from Kramer, Elaine, and Jerry. He, he wants to have these two separate, he calls them two separate worlds. He calls him them his uh, independent George world and his 
relational George world. Well, Elaine decides that she's going to reach out to Susan and start having coffee with her and hanging out with Elaine. And George freaks out. Can I just see a show of hands to see if anybody knows what I'm talking about? Hey, that's pretty good. Okay, so George is freaking, you know, okay. And he gives this whole long speech to Jerry about how his worlds are colliding and they're going to explode and it's bad and he doesn't know what to do. He's completely freaking out, right? He says, independent George, I love that. It can't collide with relationship George. It'll kill independent George. And he says, a George divided among himself cannot stand. And that was kind of the end of his statement. So anyway, I, I feel I was standing outside at camp one morning as we were worshiping, singing. And I'm looking. And I'm sending Tyler... Um, Thompson videos of what's going on. I'm just so, every time I go there, I'm moved. And uh, I love the camp. I've been there 24 years now. Uh, it's, it's another world for me. And it suddenly dawned on me that I have my redemption world and I have my Village Creek Bible Camp world. And, and the tension I was feeling was that I want those worlds to collide. I want them to be brought together somehow, and, and we will in the New Jerusalem, but I, I'm always sad that people at Redemption don't get to experience Village Creek, and that people at Village Creek don't get to experience Redemption, because I love both of these worlds. And uh, the only time we got close was four years ago when Joey and Darby got married. Our youngest daughter and our son-in-law got married four years ago. They got married at the camp. And there were a few people from Redemption who were able to go up to the camp. And they, came back, they will tell you, it is majestic and beautiful. It's one of the most amazing places they've ever been. Got to spend time on the Mississippi River in the main channel. I mean, it's just great. Um, but also the Redemption world and the hunger that people have for not just Redemption Arcadia, but Redemption as a whole, the good, um, biblically sound, gospel-centered preaching that we do. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's God's grace that these worlds don't collide. Maybe if these worlds collided, they would explode like George's world. I don't know. Maybe it's God's grace by keeping them together. But, of course, some of you are thinking, it is northeast Iowa. It's a long way away. I get that. But, anyway, I just wanted to share that. It was, okay, we'll move on now. Let's go into the sermon. Caleb, you can cut that out of the recording if you want. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so, the Gospel of John. We're starting the Gospel of John now, and it's it, the way the schedule, the way Luke uh, over at Gateway has set up the schedule, we're going to be in the Gospel of John for about 50 weeks, um, but it's actually going to take us longer than 50 weeks to get through it because we're going to take our regular breaks for things like uh, Advent. We won't do the Gospel of John during that time. We'll, we'll have a break for around Easter. We won't do it during um, uh, Easter, at least not this first year, and of course, um, uh, when the Stanley Cup... Uh, playoff finals come, you know, those two weeks, we certainly will talk about hockey rather than the Gospel of John, but um, we are going to do it for about 50 weeks. Um, and next week, I'm going to do, a, there's so much to introduce about the Gospel and about the author that I've kind of split that up into two weeks, so I'll do some more introductory material next week. But to get us started, uh, I want to do some introductory material this week. Let me talk just a little bit about the author of this Gospel, John. He is the disciple that Jesus loved, and he's the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he was also the one to whom Jesus gave the revelation, and John wrote that down as well. So uh, the way you'd look at it is this John, the apostle, the disciple that Jesus loved, wrote about a third of the New Testament, so major player. Um, John, we, we've talked a little bit about this during 1st John. John has the ability to take complex ideas and issues and make them easier to understand, not unlike our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, he had that ability as well. That's what made him such a great communicator. The thing about John, though, is that he's not simplistic. He's still deeply profound, even though he can break things down for us. Uh, and don't let the simplicity of his message fool you. This guy is hyper-intelligent. I mean, the intelligence of this guy, forget about it. And, and, and I want to do a little contrast with the Apostle Paul. So Paul also wrote about a third of the New Testament. Uh, he wrote many of the letters in the, in the New Testament. Some people also think that he wrote the book of Hebrews, but a, a third of the New Testament. But think about Paul. Paul, though he is 
thoroughly Jewish, which means he grew up studying the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and actually at one point had the Old Testament memorized in the ancient Hebrew. He was well-versed in, in the Old Testament. He was also, he, he was also brought up in a, in a place called Tarsus, which was really Greek in its context. And so Paul also had the opportunity and the privilege and the advantage uh, for studying the Greek philosophers as well. So he had a mind that also operated like uh, Plato and Aristotle and, and the rest of them. And, and so when Paul writes, if you read Paul's writings, he often writes like a Greek philosopher. And so that's why sometimes it takes a little bit of time and patience and diligence for us to really study Paul and fully understand what it is that he's getting at and what it is that he's trying to say in his writings. John, however, his style is more poetic and it's repetitious and it's circular. His style is uh, much more Jewish in its approach. Uh, he has a limited vocabulary that he uses. I'm, I'm sure he had an expansive vocabulary, but in his writings, he had a very limited vocabulary, less than 800 different Greek words that he used in all of his writing, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and that's because he was more poetic and more circular and more Hebraic in the way he wrote. So if you were to take a college course from Paul, I would imagine that the title of the college course would be this. The Epistemology and Phenomenology of Grace. Ooh. But if you were to take a college course from John, he would probably title it something like Creative Patterns of Poetry, Metaphor, and Antithesis in the Expression of Love for One Another. That's the best way, to, I think, to kind of cap encapsulate the difference between John and Paul. So think of it this way. If you combine the study of Paul and the, and the study of John, it's a beautiful thing that really results in a comprehensive understanding of the gospel and not just sort of a one-view understanding of the gospel. And that's a good thing. But it's also helpful to understand the difference between the two because if we have that understanding going into studying each of them, we can study each of them more fruitfully and therefore understand the gospel and what they're teaching much more fruitfully. So, for instance, let me now just talk about John. I'm done with Paul. Uh, there's John's understanding of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and the way he understands those scriptures. And once you begin to read and have some comprehension of the Old Testament, and then you read John, you are constantly seeing the shadows of the Old Testament in what he's writing. And so being in his particular context in the first century, people are shaking their heads when, they're, when, when, when he writes something that we're like, okay, what does he mean by that? Um, is there something more to that? Yes, there is something more to that. If you understand the Old Testament, you can see the, uh, the fullness of what he's saying. Then there's John's love for everyone. He's just a man of love. Um, this, I, for me, this is just, honestly, this is the most challenging thing I find about the Apostle John. And I think it's safe to say that our recent study of 1 John helped to see that very directly. In this gospel, however, we see that love's genesis, its origin, is fully in Jesus Christ. And that's what John keeps pointing us to. He has a heart of love because he knows Jesus. And again, the difference between the gospel of John and John's first letter is very helpful. Uh, John writes his gospel so that we may believe. That's his single-minded purpose, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God. The letter of 1 John tells us of the promises, hope, and characteristics of those who do believe, of those who are saved. Uh, one other thing. Uh, when I was a kid, our favorite place, this is back in the 60s and early 70s now, when I was a kid, our favorite place to get a hamburger was Bob's Big Boy at Central and Thomas. Anybody remember that guy? You love good food and Big Boy loves to serve it. It's a very catchy little... Anyway, we loved uh, Bob's Big Boy. And, of course, their Big Boy double-decker hamburger was iconic. So you go in there and you get the Big Boy combo. It's a double-decker de hamburger, the fries, and a salad. I don't know why they brought the salad. Just give me a Coke and I'm good to go. But they would do that. So the thing of it is, though, at least in our family, we had a big family, five kids, I was the last of five. That may explain some things to some of you. Anyway, um, there was a particular way that you were supposed to eat this glorious hamburger, and we all did. All of us did. 
uh, you would eat around the outside of the big boy hamburger and save and savor the middle for the last. Because the middle of that glorious double-decker hamburger was just the best. It's where all the sauce was. It's where the cheese was most melted. It's, it's where the hamburger was the most tender. And, and the bun had sort of melted into all the other. And, I mean, it's, it was just absolutely glorious. That's what you would do. The center was just the best. The goodness of the big boy hamburger started in the center and radiated out from there. The Gospel of John is actually very similar. The, the key point of the Gospel of John, we, we're, we're looking at the purpose today, which he writes in chapter 20, but the key point of the Gospel of John is actually found at the very center of the Gospel, the story of Lazarus being resurrected in chapter 11. Jesus says in that chapter, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me will live even though he or she dies. In other words, we're going we're gonna to die physically, but if we know Jesus, we're going to live eternally. We're going to live with him in the kingdom of God. That's the theme of the entire Gospel of John. Knowing Christ, believing in Jesus so that we are saved. Those who believe have eternal life, we have kingdom life. Even though eventually we will all die in these mortal earthbound bodies, we will be resurrected into our new creation bodies. And the rest of the goodness of this gospel all just radiates out from there in both directions, from chapters 10 to 1 and from chapters 12 to 21. That's, that's the way John has set this uh, up for us, I believe. So to the text, let me reread what we're looking at today. This is John's purpose. He gives us his thesis statement at the end. Again, a very, a very Jewish thing to do. You know, Paul wants to let you know right up front what's going on. Uh, that's, that's what Aristotle would do generally as well. But John waits to the end to write this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So let's just look at some of the words in this little section here. Many other signs are not written in this book, but these signs are written. That word signs, let's define that. That word is used 17 times in the gospel, so it's an important word. Signs can also be and have been in other Greek writings translated as miracles or works, but here we call them signs. Now, why signs? Because a sign points us to something. We don't worship the sign. The sign is pointing us to that which we need to get to. The sign gives us guidance and direction to where we need to be. It points us somewhere. A sign represents a reality that we are looking toward and hoping for. So Jesus is doing these signs so that we would understand how we can have eternal life and who to believe in. And in our normal Daily discourse, we use this word occasionally. That was a sign that something was going to happen. Uh, we have seen signs from the bosses that this is where the company is headed. Uh, what do you think this means? What's that a sign of? That is obviously a sign of things to come. So we use this word in that way all the time. John is saying, I told you specifically about these things, these signs, these miracles, these events. Why? Because the signs I choose to recount for you specifically and narrowly point you to the one that you and I need. And that is Jesus, the Messiah who has now come in the flesh, the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one. Messiah literally means the anointed one, the Son of God. Read this treatise of mine, John says, and you will know God. And once you know God, it is time to believe in him and have eternal life. So one question might be, well, what would the other signs be? Do we see some of the other signs or all of the other signs in the other Gospels? Yeah, I imagine there's some. And we could speculate that there might be others that none of the four Gospels recorded. But these are recorded for a very specific reason and purpose. And the ones that Mark and Luke and Matthew record also have specific purposes for them too. John spells it out for us, though, in verses 30 and 31 of, of chapter 20. Here, He says, these signs are written, one of John's favorite things to write, and we saw this, um, we saw this in 1 John, I write these things so that you will know, 
I write these things so that you will know. I write these things because you need to know where you can find truth and reality and hope. And he says, these are written that you may believe. That word translated believe is used 90 times in the Gospel of John. It's an important word. It's a key word. That word uh, translated believe can also be translated as have faith or trust in. Same thing. So believe what? Well, he tells us that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And secondly, that he's the Son of God. Uh, and it's so interesting about the signs that John chooses. This is really important for us to understand as we go through this gospel. They are not prophetic signs of judgment, but rather they are encouraging signs of new life. Just think about that. They're not prophetic signs of judgment, but they are encouraging signs of new life. The Old Testament prophets spent quite a bit of their time, and rightly so, being told by God to warn God's people that if they did not obey God, unhappy and unpleasant consequences would come. And that was true. And we too should be warned in that way. If we walk away from God, there's going to be consequences to that. But now Jesus comes along. He's not just a prophet, but he's the Christ. He's the Son of God. And he brings restoration and life. The last part of that little passage that we read today is about life. That word is used 35 times in the Gospel of John. So signs pointing for us to believe so that we have life. Those are the three most important words. And we're going to have other important words next week. But those are pretty important words right there. He brings restoration and life. And his signs, especially in the book of John, point to specifically new life, redemption, grace, restoration, and the goodness of things to come. Jesus did not come to judge sin and take God's people into exile. That's not what he came to do. He came to pay for sin and to give God's people restoration and allow them entrance into the kingdom of God. A quick, simple example of this, and we'll get to this in a few weeks. I love this passage. It's at the beginning of chapter 2. It's the wedding at Cana where Jesus turned the water into wine. Jesus did not look at the revelers at the reception and say, you know, you all have sinned greatly and you are sinning greatly, so I'm going to turn the water into sewage because that's what you deserve. Maybe on one of their bad days, the Old Testament prophets might have tried to do that. You know, but that's not what Jesus did. Instead, he turned the water into wine. And we get excited about the wine, and I understand that. But the problem is, is you can't stop with the wine. It's not just the wine. It may have been the best wine that they ever had, and some of them said it was. But it's really not about the wine. The wine is a sign. It's a picture of the truth of what Jesus is doing to us and in us and for us. We, in Christ, are new. We're restored. We're redeemed. It's not just that they got good wine when the other wine ran out. The good wine is pointing to something much, much bigger and more important, and that is grace, the new creation, redemption, and restoration. Consider, just consider Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The author writes this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, there's, a, by the way, another Definition of the last days, starting with Jesus' ascension and ending when he comes again. We're in the last days right now. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sitting down at the right hand is um, an image of saying it's now completed. Everything that you and I need for salvation, for redemption, for new life, not new life, not new lice, we don't want new lice, new life, it's done. You know, we work so hard to be worthy of being redeemed and God says, I've already redeemed you. 
That's a beautiful thing. I've done everything you need to do. That's why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He wasn't saying, I'm dead now. He's saying, no. Everything I came to do is finished. Sin has been paid for. All of that. Reconciliation, redemption, restoration, all the R words, done. It's also worth noting that Thomas saw firsthand these signs. Remember how he demanded that? Now, just take the passage that we're looking at and go back to verse 24, starting in verse 24, before the passage we're looking at today. John chapter 20. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Thomas said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger on the mark of the nails and place my hand to his side where he was run through with the spear, unless I can do that, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I always wanted to just a video of they're all kind of hanging out and all of a sudden Jesus appears, peace be with you. And they're like, ah, not much peace, but they're glad to see Jesus. Anyway, that's my own little idea. He says, peace be with you. And then he turned right to Thomas. He says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put, your, uh, and, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. It's worth noting that although Thomas saw firsthand all of these signs, and yet you and I are more blessed. This is what Jesus said, not just scriptures. Jesus said, you and I are more blessed because we read about these signs and yet believe, because that means the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. The Holy Spirit is alive and well in us, changing our hearts, turning our minds. How many times have we thought or have heard somebody say, oh, to have actually seen Jesus, then I would really believe and be blessed? Not necessarily. There were many people who saw him do these signs and walked away unimpressed and did not believe. So John is all about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And I want to end today by talking about what I would call today's cultural gospel, the competing gospel. There's the cultural gospel, and then there's the gospel of Jesus, the true gospel. Today's cultural gospel, in one respect, is a lot like fast food. It's a lot like fast food. Uh, we are told in our culture to seek immediate gratification based on our deepest desires because our hearts would never, ever betray us. So let's think about that in terms of fast food. Let's understand the term fast food, okay? I hope you understand that when we say fast food, the emphasis really isn't on the food, amen? It's on the fast. If you had to wait a half an hour for the kind of food they serve in fast food restaurants, it, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't eat it. The reason you eat it is because it's fast, and we live busy lives. And, and, and we also, the reason we eat it is because there's grease and salt involved, which is magnificent and wonderful in the moment, okay? The emphasis is not on the food, but on the fast. That's our culture today. That is our culture today. I'm not going to wait. I want my pleasure and gratification now. It's all about me. Take care of me now. In the, in the food arena, that steady and fast diet of grease and sodium, so satisfying in the moment, but it eventually it'll kill us. It'll make us sick. And so trying to be fulfilled by something like that is just a greased pig. It, no pun intended, but, but it is. I, you know, I, I, I admit to you, and I, I have trouble doing this with Jackie in the room because I think I've been able to hide this from her for a while, but a couple of times a year, I will drive through Jack in the Box to get an ultimate cheeseburger, fries, and a large Diet Coke. The Diet Coke, obviously, to offset the ultimate cheeseburger and the fries. So good. And I eat it in the car, and then I roll down the windows to get the smell out, put everything into the bag, and throw it away so that maybe Jackie doesn't know. Chew gum. It's so satisfying. It really is. It's going down. That's, let me tell you, going down, it's good. 
It really is good. Talk to me like three or four hours later. It's, it's awful. It is, it is truly awful. Similarly, we exist today on a steady diet of instant pleasure and gratification, and it's killing us. It's killing us. Uh, Lori Gottlieb, in, she's a psychologist, and in her most recent book, she actually has a name for this malady. She spends a chapter talking about this malady. She calls it the speed of want. The speed of want. She writes, this is essentially what most of my uh, clients or patients, this is what essentially they're saying. I want what I want when I want it. And anything less is just not acceptable. In fact, if I don't get what I want when I want it, it's a form of victimization, oppression, and persecution. That's the world we live in today. And she cites one of the most ridiculous examples. Um, Devon, I know you've read this book. I think you're out there somewhere, Devon. I know you've read this book, and maybe you remember this. I'm not making this up. She says there are apps for smartphones now called therapy apps, and, and essentially what they say is, it says, feel better now. So you hit the app on your phone, and they say something to you, you're really a magnificent person, and you feel better. Well, I can make you feel better right now, too. I can do that. Drugs, alcohol, and pornography. Pretty easy deal. Here you go. It's one of the reasons our addiction rate is the highest it's ever been in this country right now, is because we live in a culture of the speed of want. That's why. Everybody's addicted to something. No one understands or wants the true speed of life, but then there's Jesus. Jesus comes, and we'll look at this in two weeks, he comes, and the word is he tabernacles with us. He took on flesh, and he tabernacles. He, he literally, it's, he pitched a tent in our neighborhood and decided to live with us. He moved into the neighborhood, is how one translation describes it. He moved into the neighborhood with us. He walks with us, and he suffers with us, and he journeys with us, and he prays with us, and for us, and he bears our cross for us. And at the end of it, he died for us. And this life of Jesus, it's not instant. It's not fast. Yes, you can be converted to a Christian in the blink of an eye. That's how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. But then the actual walk with him, this life of faith is a life of Jesus marinating us and immersing us. He bakes us. He doesn't microwave us. It's like he's a Midwest Jesus. He doesn't use the microwave. He bakes, you know. He brazes, he journeys, he avails himself, and he sits patiently with us. It's not instant, but it's eternal, and it's profound. And he gives life where there is no life. And that's what John records for us in this gospel that we're going to be in for the next 49 weeks after this. It's the good news of the life in Jesus. Do you know that life? Do you know Jesus? John wants you to know and believe. Jesus wants you to know and believe. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And Man, I feel like we pray that every week, but it's true. We're, we're grateful to have your word and its truth, somewhere to anchor us, somewhere to look for these important teachings and the proclamation of your good news. God, we're grateful for that. We're thankful. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would take these truths and apply them to the hearts of the people of God. And not only there, but apply them to hearts that would like to resist this truth. And that your Holy Spirit would work on transforming lives. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to have our time of uh, communion now. Uh, again, I'm Someday, maybe, I'm looking forward to the time that we can all participate at the same table. You all have your little mini tables there in the form of those little communion packets. And those of you who are at home, I hope you have prepared your communion, whatever that might be, and you're ready to take it. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he's having dinner with his best friends, even though one of them was going to betray him.
That was Judas in the sound booth. That was me, guys. <laughs> so. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> you? <laughs> anyway. Where was I? Oh, his friends eating dinner. He took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they had supped on the bread, he took the cup of the wine and he says, this is the new covenant. Pour it out in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. It's for the forgiveness of sins. And Paul tells us later that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. It, we, we proclaim that we're living in the reality of waiting for Jesus' advent. And that is a beautiful thing. Taking communion is a celebration. It's an act of worship, but it's also a confession and an alignment. It's alignment with Jesus. It's all of those things. And that's why we call it a sacrament. It's a sacred time. And so as we uh, do that contemplatively and celebratory, and we sing together, we'll do that now.
Thank you for being here today and worshiping together and hearing the word, taking communion together. This uh, benediction today comes from Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27. Uh, after we read this, if you would exit through the doors to your left, and we'll enjoy seeing you next time. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of the faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. My Sunday, a king.